me the book of John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. Again, if you're visiting with us this morning, we've been going through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, and uh, we're thankful for what God has taught us already. We're looking forward to what God has for us even as we continue uh, here in the Gospel of John. Now, in, in John chapter 5, we're down to verse 19, and we're actually, uh, someone said, getting into a large red-letter uh, section. If you have a red-letter uh, Bible, you know, the, the words of Christ are in red, and I happen to have that kind of Bible. It's, it's all red here, this whole passage that we're looking at this morning. So this is what Jesus uh, was teaching, was saying at this time, and uh, I think uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful section. Now, it's a fairly large section, so uh, uh, we'll uh, get through it uh, uh, as best we can this morning. But it's a, a simple, uncontested fact that no single man has ever changed the face of the world so much as this Galilean carpenter by the name of Jesus and it was Napoleon Bonaparte who once was heard to say, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have found empires, but upon what do these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this day, millions would die for him. You know, we have religions in our world today who are trying to make people believe what they believe, and they're trying to do it by force. I can't force you to come to Christ this morning, but I can give you the love of Christ, which can show you how much better off you would be if you would come to Christ. There have been religious leaders who have influenced the world, who have preached how men ought to live. But Jesus is unique, and he preached himself. He said, I am the vine. He said, I am the light. I am the way. I am the bread of life. I am the Messiah. I and the Father are one. No other great teacher in history has ever made such claims as Jesus made for himself. And this means you can never get away with saying that Jesus was just Merely a good man. You know, Jesus himself refused to, to be called that. He said, only God is good. That means either Jesus, uh, that, uh, that means either Jesus is, uh, is God or else he's uh, not really good. You must either fall at his feet and worship him this morning or you must reject him altogether. Who is this Jesus what did he say about himself? And here we come to a passage of Scripture where we are introduced to some of his claims. We're going to look at the claims of Christ. Number one is the submissive son. Look at verse 19 and 20. We'll be looking here at verse 19 and 20 in this section. Everything that Jesus says in this discourse comes in a direct result of a confrontation that took place in the first part of this chapter. Jesus had performed a miracle on the Sabbath day. It was not bad enough in the eyes of the Jews. Jesus also healed uh, a man, uh, told him to take up his bed and go home. 
This was also an affront to the Jews as they took as a clear violation of the Sabbath. And when they charged Jesus with breaking the Sabbath, his response was to reply that the reason he works on the Sabbath is because his father also works on the Sabbath. And the Jews did not miss the implication of that statement. They realized that Jesus was claiming that he was equal with God. But if Jesus had not been equal with God, this would have been a perfect time for him to kind of issue a disclaimer. You know how we sometimes have disclaimers in books and so forth? Uh, he could have issued a disclaimer if he wasn't really God. He could have said, hold it, hold it now. You don't, you don't understand me. I did not mean to imply that I'm really equal with God. No, he didn't do that. He did not issue a disclaimer. He did not back down from his claim. Instead, he now moves to underline, emphasize this claim. And so here in verse 19, we notice, first of all, the submission of dependence. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, and what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Now, the underlying principle here of this passage is introduced right here in this first verse of this section. It is the principle that the Son does not operate independently of the Father. He only does those things that the Father shows him to do. And this means that if Jews are going to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, then they're going to have to accuse God as well. They have accused Jesus of setting himself up against God, but he has shown them that they are the ones who have set themselves up against God. So we see the submission of dependence. Secondly, we see the submission of understanding. Verse 20, the first part, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. The reason that it could be demonstrated that the Son is doing the right thing is because the Father has shown him all things. It's noteworthy, I think, that the word used here for loveth is the Greek word phileo. And we are familiar, perhaps, with the different words uh, for love. Today, uh, love usually means lust. But the word phileo means a brotherly type of love. Hence the word Philadelphia, kind of the, uh, the city of brotherly love. But... Uh, here he uses the word loveth, and it's really the word phileo, and you would have thought it would have been agape, which is a God-like gov. The word that is used here is a type of love based upon a relationship. That's why we say phileo is like a brotherly love, a relational uh, uh, love. And this is the kind of love the Father has for the Son. They enjoy a relationship, but this their relationship goes all the way back through eternity uh, uh, past. So the submission of dependence, the submission of understanding, and thirdly, the submission of result. Notice the last part of verse 20. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. Jews have been amazed that Jesus had been able to heal a lame man and cause him to walk. And Jesus says, in fact, well, you haven't seen anything yet because the best is to come. And the result of the submission the Father or the Son shows the Father is that the Son will show even greater works. And what are these greater works? Well, they're described later in the same passage. Instead of merely causing a lame man to stand, Jesus will one day cause the dead to rise up out of their graves. Now notice how this principle underscores one of the great paradoxes of Scripture. 
The result of submission is exaltation. The way, this is the way to the kingdom, this is the way to kingship is through servanthood. The way to being spiritually rich is to recognize that you are spiritually poor. The way to save your life is to lose your life. And so you have this paradox even in this particular passage here. So we find here the submissive son. Secondly, the honored son, uh, verses 21 and 22. Now, having shown that he was taking a posture of submission to his heavenly father, Jesus goes on to show that the result of this submission is a result of honor. Jesus is to be given honor because, number one, the life of the Father is accorded to the Son. Verse 21, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. God is sovereign in the matters of life and death. He and only he was, has the power to give life. Now, I think the Jews understood this principle. Because if they knew their scripture, which they were supposed to know, uh, their own scriptures taught them that God is the dispenser of life and death. It says in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and make alive, I wound and I heal, neither is there any that deliver out of my hand. The Jews ought to have known this principle. They known this this uh, uh, this truth because of their scriptures, the Old Testament, and the Bible teaches us that God, who is able to put to death, is also able to give life. Jesus says that just as the Father has complete sovereignty over life and death, so Jesus has that same sovereignty. Now, you also notice here the judgment of the Father is accorded to the Son, verse 22 and 23. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Jesus is claiming to be equal with the Father in the area of judgment. He tells us that it is not the Father who judges, but this judgment is accorded to the Son. There is coming a day when all men will stand at a seat of judgment. That means everyone, everyone, every last one of us here today, everyone in this community, everyone in this state, everyone in this country, everyone that's ever lived is going to stand before God at a seat of judgment. And when they look to the one who sits on that seat, it'll be the, the one whose hands are going to be nail-scarred and whose side marks the mark of the Roman spear. It has been said there are two kinds of lawyers, those who know the law and those who know the judge. Now, some would say there are other kinds too, but we're not going to get into that this morning. There are those who know the law and those who know the judge. Listen, Make sure that when the day comes, you stand before God, you know the judge. The judgment of the Father is also accorded to the Son. Thirdly, the honor to the Father is accorded to the Son. Again in verse 22, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. You cannot believe in the Father and love the Father and honor the Father without also believing in and loving and honoring the Son. You say, oh, I believe in God, but uh, I don't know about Jesus. I think he's just a man. 
No, you better, if you love, know God and you love Him, you better honor and love the Son. I've heard people say, well, they love God. They hold to Christian principles, but they don't want anything to do with Jesus. Well, that's impossible. Take Jesus away from Christianity, and there is no Christianity. He did not come to preach a way to God. He came preaching that He is the way to God. He preached Himself. Now, you look at verse 22 and uh, verse 23 here. It says, For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto God. Verse 23, That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. All, in verse 22, He hath committed all judgment. Verse 23, all. Notice that word, that all men should honor him. There's coming a day when all the world will honor the Son. And on that day, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that day, you will honor the Son willingly, or you will honor him unwillingly, but you will honor him. So we see the honored Son here. Jesus is giving us this claim. Thirdly, he's the bringer of life. Verse 24 and 25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is come, and now is, or excuse me, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they shall hear, uh, they that hear shall live. Now we saw back in verse 21, it says the Son gives life to whom He wishes. Now we read that this life is given to all who hear and believe. And this is the entire purpose that John is even writing this book. We've seen that from the very beginning as we looked at chapter 20 and, and verse 31. It's so that you will hear and you will believe and you will enter into this life. That's why this book is written. And notice also, this life is not limited to the future. It's described as a present reality. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath. Right now, you have everlasting life. If you hear it and you believe it, you have everlasting life. Jesus is speaking of a reality that was present in his day, and it is present today. There are people in that day, and there are people today who are passing from death into life. Now, verse 25 particularly underscores the present aspect of eternal life. Uh, you know, people say, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And they think, well, if I get saved, I have everlasting life. Sometime in the future when I die, I'll have everlasting life. No, when you get saved, everlasting life starts right then. Right at that point in time. And it can't be taken away from you. But he says here, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they, shall, they that hear shall live. When you read that, you might think, well, what does that mean? Hey, 
glad you asked this morning because I'll do my best to explain it to you. What does he mean when the hour is now is? Well, we're in a period of time when the hour is coming. Verse 28 makes it clear that the hour has not yet arrived. In verse 28, we'll get down there, but it says, For the hour is coming. The thought is, we live in an age or a dispensation that is moving to a time when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and, the hear, and they that hear shall live. If we are in the time that the hour that is coming, then what does it mean when he says, well, it now is? Who are the dead who hear his voice now? Well, back in John chapter 11, where we have an incident where Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. You'll remember he said to his two sisters at the time of his death, the death of Lazarus, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Though he were dead, does this mean that a person in a grave hears? No. He's referring to spiritual death, not physical death. Death means separation from God. The hour is coming when those who are in the grave shall hear the voice and shall live. But the hour is now when those who are spiritually dead hear his voice and live. Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He said they had been dead in their trespasses and sins. That's a spiritual condition every one of us had. Before... Those of you that are here this morning got saved. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says, but he that heareth my word and believeth on me hath sent me half everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death, that is out of spiritual death, unto life, the life that he gives. So in verse 25 and verse 28, he's talking really about two separate things. The time is now when Christ will give spiritual life. You trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He's going to give you life. Spiritual life. But the hour is coming when He's going to raise the dead out of the graves. Now, how, here's a wonderful truth. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have partaken in this resurrection already. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, you have risen to a new life. Because of that, you are called to live differently. Colossians 3 and verse 1 says, If or since ye have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You've been granted new life, and you're to live on a higher plane. You now have, are living with an eternal perspective a heavenly perspective. Imagine with me for a moment what would happen if God were to come to you and tell you, he'd give you a piece of paper, and he says, write out your agenda and your course for your life. What are you, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you going to accomplish? He said, oh, that's great. I, I, I've been waiting for somebody to ask me that. I always want to make known what I, what I want to do and, and my agenda. You jump at the champs. But one problem, which you is going to write that agenda? Say, which you? Well, would it be the person you were when you were 10 years old? My agenda for life. I want to be a fireman. 
<laughs> I want to be, I want to be a, a, a football player. I want to do this. At age 10, your agenda is quite different than it is right now, isn't it? How about the person you were at age 15? Well, I don't want to be a fireman anymore. And football is kind of hard, so I don't know if I want to play football. How about age 20? Hmm. Or age 25? No, you'd probably want to write out the agenda of the person that you are today. Why? Because today you have the benefit of a perspective on life. There are some young people here that don't have as much perspective on life as some of us older people do. I still can't believe I'm 65 years old. I mean, that used to be ancient. I don't necessarily think of myself 65 years old until I start doing physical things, and I say, oh, maybe I am. Like trying to climb ladders and paint the fellowship hall. Not as young as I used to be. But today you have the benefit of a greater perspective on life than you had when you were early, in your earlier age. But what gives you the idea your perspective today is sufficient to be compared to the perspective of eternity? You see, that's God's perspective. He sees the big, 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 big picture. You know, sometimes we think we see the big picture, but God sees all of eternity from beginning to end. Well, there is no end. It's eternity. It's only when you see your life from a heavenly perspective that you can really true have, a com- have a true and complete perspective on your life. And so we have here the bringer of life. God, through Jesus Christ, has brought us life, eternal life. But then an area we don't like to not necessarily talk about is the authoritative judge. Look at verse 26 through 28. Jesus had already stated in verse 22 the principle that all judgment had been given to him. The idea of judgment did not take the Jews by surprise. It was part of their theology. They believed in God that was going to bring forth judgment into the world. And what did surprise them that this judgment was going to be given to Jesus. And he is the authoritative judge because, number one, he has life in himself. Verse 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. If the judgment is a matter of life and death, then it follows that the one who has been given judgment is the one who has the ability to, in himself to confer life and death. And yet this passage does not say that Jesus has life and death in himself. The focus here is upon life. He has life in himself. This is the focus because we are already under the sentence of death. Someone might ask the question, well, what do I have to do to go to hell? You know what you have to do to go to hell? Nothing. Don't do anything. You go to hell. If you're an unbeliever, if you have not Christ as your Savior, you're already dead in your trespasses and sins. You're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience. You're already by nature a son of wrath or a child of wrath. And when you come to the Son, you find 
that he has life. He is the source of life. And that life is to be found in himself. It's only as you are in Christ that you enter into the source of life. So he has life in himself. Secondly, he is the son of man. That's why he can be the authoritative judge. He is the son of man, verse 27. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Here's another reason that Jesus has the authority to judge mankind. It's because he is a man. It's not a denial of the Trinity. Jesus is both fully God and fully man because he is a man. He's qualified to judge man. We can also say that the reason Jesus has an authority to judge mankind is because he is judged in place of mankind. See, Jesus took the judgment that was justly due to you and me. He died that you would not have to die. He suffered so you would not have to suffer the penalty. And so when you come to Jesus, you come to one who is both judge and judged. He's the Son of Man. And then thirdly, He will raise the dead. Verse 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Two, re- two resurrections mentioned here. The book of Revelation is more specific and uh, describes the completion of the first resurrection in chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. The second resurrection in chapters 20, 11 through 15. And we won't take time to go to the book of Revelation go through that. We would not get to lunch if we did that. But the first resurrection is the resurrection of all the saved. First phrase, phase of that which is next on the agenda of God. We call it the rapture. The Greek word harpazo in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where he says we're going to be caught up, it means to be raptured. The rapture takes place at some time in the future. We don't have a date for it. We don't really have signs given for it. It could happen before I finish this sentence. It could happen before we get done with this service. It could happen at any time. He's going to call out his own out of this world, both the living and the dead. This is part of the first resurrection. Then during the tribulation period, a great many believers will become martyrs. They will be raised. Now, there are going to be some that are saved during the tribulation. Uh, most, uh, all the believers are going to be taken out, but then during the tribulation, uh, there are going to be those that are going to save, and they're going to be suffering as martyrs. They'll be raised at the end of the Great Tribulation. This is also a part of the first resurrection. They'll be raised to live forever here upon this earth. That's the first resurrection. It's a resurrection of life. But then there's a resurrection of judgment. And this is going to be at the great white throne judgment when all the unsaved of all ages will be raised and they will be judged by their works. And many times people say, you know, look at what I've done. They want to be judged by the works? Okay, we'll judge you by your works. That's what's going to happen there. They'll stand before God, God who is just and who is righteous, and they'll have an opportunity to stand before God, a holy God, and they're going to plead their case. But God's already warned them that no one will be saved in that judgment. No one can stand before God and say, you know, I did this, 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 and this. Isn't that good enough? God said, nope, sorry, 
He's already warned us of that. It's only the lost who will be brought there to the great white throne judgment. And they'll be judged according to their works because there are degrees of punishment. We read that in Luke chapter 12. And so Jesus is going to, or he's going to raise the dead. He's the, uh, has life in himself. He's the son of man. He'll raise the dead. And then finally, the rejected one, verse 30 and 31. I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the father, which sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, Jesus has been talking here for a while a good bit about himself, claiming great things about who he is as the Son of God. He's acknowledged here in verse 31 that he has said these things about himself with no evidence, no corroboration. And if he said that with no evidence and no corroboration, he wouldn't be truthful, right? Jesus points out that there is a fact that there is ample evidence to support his claims as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And the problem for non-believers of that day, and in our day as well, is not a lack of testimony, but a lack of faith. Now notice why these people would not believe. For one thing, they discounted the proofs. Far from being his own witness and evidence, Jesus lays out in verses 32 through 37 the witnesses to his authenticity of as the Son of God. He, he talks here about John the Baptist. Some These very leaders had gone out to hear John preach. His ministry fascinated them. They heard him say, I am not the Messiah. But they also heard him say of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And yet there was an even greater witness than a human witness of John. Jesus said in verse 36 here, notice it in verse 36. He says, But I have a greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness to me, and the Father hath sent me. John the writer has recorded three signs or miracles so far in this, this gospel, but he told us that there are many other wonderful things that Jesus did. Jesus was busy doing all sorts of miraculous things, things that pointed to the truth of who he was. And yet they miss these things. They miss the things like the blind man standing before them like a big billboard. Hey, beyond the John and beyond the signs, Jesus had said the very Father who sent him had borne witness to him. But they missed it. They missed the testimony of the Father, though they missed the testimony of his word. And Jesus said in verse 39 here, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they, that are, they are they which testify of me. He was saying, you just search through the Scriptures because you think they give you life, but you're missing this, the point of Scripture. I am the one who those, the Scriptures are talking about. The truth is that everything pointed to Jesus, but these people chose not to uh, see that. They chose to look the other way. The signs were all there, but they refused to read them. Jesus knew why. He pointed out in this passage, not only they discounted the proofs, but they also desired the praise. Look at verse 40. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Literally, he's saying, you are not willing to come to me. You don't want to come to me. It wasn't that Jesus was not a legitimate Messiah. 
It was that these people didn't want a real, really want a Messiah, at least not one that would have to, they would have to humble themselves to receive. Jesus pointed out the love of God wasn't in these men who claimed to know so much about God and the Son of God had come in the name of God to save them and they rejected Him. And Jesus said something very powerful, very convicting. He said in verse 44, you look there, He says, How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Listen, and listen to me very carefully this morning. For here the words Jesus cut not against non-believers. He's not just talking to non-believers here, but He's talking to you and He's talking to me this morning. They didn't want to come to Jesus because they wanted praise of their peers. They wanted people to say nice things about them. They wanted people to really lift them up. They wanted to go noticed. They wanted to be, it to be all about them and not about Him. Monday evening at camp, the main speaker was sick, and so we had to settle for Randy Tannis. He's a good preacher, too. Preached a great message Monday night. It's not about me. It's all about God. And some of us need to get a hold of that truth right there. It's not about me. It's all about God. And that was a great message for the young people at camp, the teenagers. But you know, it's a great message for all of us today. Unfortunately, there are too many times in my own life when, like those Non-believers, I choose myself and my own glory over the glory of Christ. There are times when I would not live for Him because I'm too busy living for myself. And yet the gospel points us to this glorious Savior who humbled Himself when He could have exalted Himself, and He died when He could have lived. He went to the cross for me while I'm still a sinner before I ever believed upon him. And he died to give me life. He rose from the dead and now his life is available to me only as I follow in his steps and humble myself and turn to him in faith and do the will of the Father who sent him. I wonder this morning, how about you this morning? Do you accept or reject the claims of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Are you saved? Are you one of God's people? Do you know for certain that you possess the gift of eternal life? If not, then you need to consider the claims of Jesus Christ, God's Son, who gave His life on Calvary's cross for your sin. If you're saved this morning, does your life evidence the reality of your faith? If it doesn't, then I'm not telling you to go out and do more good works. I'm telling you instead, go to the cross and repent and believe so that the Lord might save you and regenerate you and produce those good works in you. Fruit does not give a tree life. But one of the ways you can tell that a tree is alive is because it's producing fruit. What is true of trees is also true of people. God looks for fruit in the lives of his people. And what kind of fruit does he look for? Well, he looks for the fruit of the Spirit. He looks for love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and temperance. That's not to say that we're going to achieve perfection in this life, but it does mean that 
our lives will be producing. You'll be loving God. You'll be trying to please God, not yourself. I wonder, is your heart full of the joy of the Lord this morning? Are you experiencing an abiding peace? Are you becoming even more patient? Is your life characterized by self-control? If you've not accepted the claims of Christ, then you're not living for Him. And there's probably not evidence that you have faith in Him. But if you accept Him, believe Him, trust Him, you can experience this abiding peace. You can become what God wants you to become. And you can honor His name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for...